be open to experience, be willing to try new things, don't have a rigid plan, uh, accept random acts of hospitality without judgment or fear. Don't be afraid to wander, don't be afraid to eat a bad meal. You know, if you don't risk the bad meal, you'll never get the magical one. But I think most important, you know, be humble, be grateful. Uh, be aware of the fact that you are probably the stupidest person in the room. As far as you are the least prepared, least equipped person to know who's really in charge and what's really going on. Um, what have you learned about people? I think I made of maybe before I started traveling, I thought that the human race as a whole were, you know, could, could and would turn on itself at any moment. You know, venal, petty, cruel, arbitrary. And, and it's true that all of those things exist in this world, but I meet mostly pretty nice people doing the best they can, often under very, very difficult conditions. I met a lot of very nice people who've done very, very bad things that conflict with my deeply held uh, conceptions of justice, of sexual equality, or acceptable practice, or religious views. Um, a lot of gray areas in travel. Um, but I think that on balance, the world is filled with people doing the best they can, you know, who love their kids and, you know, would like to, you know, put on a clean shirt every morning and live their lives with a little dignity and have access to food and water, hope, um, just like everybody else. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 106 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And we are back for another profile. Now you'll know, once in a while I do a profile of someone who has died abroad, who is kind of a famous person, a household name. I have done Heath Ledger, but I've also done Locked Up Abroad ones for Alexei Navalny and Julian Assange. And we are back with another man this week week who I've been putting off doing this episode for probably about six months. Every week I go on to do it and then I don't do it. And then the reason that you're getting another episode this week is because I was sitting here and I was like, if I don't do this this week, I'm not doing it um, because I've just been putting it off. I'll get into it in a minute. So I just want to say that that was a clip from Fast Company and I will be using that interview, which is my favorite with Anthony Bourdain for the opener to each part of this episode. And it will be a multi-part episode. It will be about three parts, I think. It won't be any more than that. So I just want to say welcome new patron, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming on board and for your kind messages. Um, thank you also for your support to the podcast, Nate. He is American living in China. And I got a fun, really funny email from him <laughs> when I thanked him um, for sending a few dollars to the podcast. And I got a funny email that I asked him if I could read and he said yes. So I'm just going to read you what he likes about the podcast. And this is the kind of feedback that I've got before from people, which I love. Somebody referred to it as like a gorilla production. Gorilla, not gorilla. Um, so Nate wrote that he loves, quote, the lack of fanciness is what gives it character. The choppy editing, the cats in the background, the hot takes, lack of a script, the stream of consciousness. It makes it better. It's like seeing someone draw an amazing work of art in 
Microsoft Paint rather than on an artist's tablet. It makes it better. Fuck that fancy shit. And then he went on to say, um, it's good to have a host that doesn't blare shitty dubstep music and acts like a strip club DJ right before he or she talks about people who got murdered. (laughs) I was like, I wrote back to him, that is exactly what I'm going for. But I will correct one thing. I do have a script. I just go off it because I'm able to think on the go. (laughs) Unlike a lot of people. I will never not have choppy editing unless someone out there wants to pay for a studio. And if you don't, and you're going to complain about it, not that anyone has, then I need you to go away. Um, so yes, I like this Microsoft Paint version of a podcast and I know you guys too. So thank you so much, Nate. You made me laugh today when I really needed it because our lockdown has been extended here in Melbourne. So if you can contribute some money to the podcast, the Gmail email on PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for your support patrons and otherwise and listeners. Now, I'm going to get into part one of this episode. Now, I have wanted to do the story of Anthony Bourdain for about a year. I wanted to do him as the first profile when I did Julian Assange and Heath Ledger. But I kind of knew that there was a documentary coming about out about Anthony and I kind of heard about it and then decided to wait. But I actually haven't watched it because it's out at the movies and movies don't exist in Australia anymore at the movies. So they need to release it in some other format. It's called Roadrunner. I have not seen it. It is kind of Anthony in his own words. Now, people have issues with one particular thing in it, including his ex-wife, Otavia. Otavia. Now, one of the issues with it is that certain parts in it, it is not Anthony talking, but it is Anthony talking. So they've used things that he's already said before to create things that he's saying. Now, I'm not a fan of that, unless you're talking about like Oliver Reed in the movie Gladiator. He died during filming it and they used clips they already had of him acting and his voice to kind of fill out Proximo's storyline, which I love. But that's a movie. And I don't really like them putting words into people's mouths that they didn't say for a nonfiction piece. Recently, some director has cast James Dean in a movie. Now, if you're wondering how that works, because James Dean died about 70 years ago, um, that's a good question. Basically, they're going to use film they already have of him to put him in a new movie. Why you can't cast actual up-and-coming actors and give them a chance. James Dean. (laughs) James Dean is one of those people who I don't think would have been the star that he was if he hadn't died young. Heath Ledger, yes, already star. James Dean, three movies, and a star because he died young. But let's give other people a chance and not use the estate of a dead person, not only because it takes a chance away from, you know, an up-and-coming actor who has studied the craft for ages, But it's also James Dean never allowed you to use him in a new movie in 2020. Same thing with Anthony Bourdain. And I've read quotes from his second wife where she was not happy with that. Um, And I understand that because it's not something that he said. You're using CGI for a deep fake. And there's something about technology in that instance that really scares me. Um, Anyway, so if you've seen it, that's good. I've read some good reviews. I've read some really bad reviews. But there is enough about Anthony out there, if you watched any of his shows for the past 20 years like I did, to work off. And if you've read any of his books like I have, 
good. Um, he had a, quite a number of books out and they're available on audio, Audible as well and he reads them and I think that's the best way to kind of enjoy them. Now, when Anthony Bourdain died in 2018, I did not handle it well, although like Robin Williams, I did see it coming. So in this, if you are into conspiracy theories that the CIA killed Anthony Bourdain, I need you to switch off now because that is disrespectful to someone who repeatedly had suicidal ideations throughout his show, which any fan of his, any real fan understood that. And one final thing, I believe, tipped him over the edge at the end. But this is going to go in chronological order of his life. So part three is going to be where we talk about his suicide in 2018. So if that's not something that you can handle at the moment, um, maybe don't listen to this multi-parter. Um, at the time when he died, I said to a friend of mine, if he, someone like that, who has all that opportunity um, on his lap and has been to all those places and is able to put things in perspective, having dealt, you know, talked to people in the Congo and very poor people and they still end their life. What about people like me or like you listening who have struggled, you know, with mental health for a long time and don't have a lot kind of keeping them afloat? What does that say about us and what's going to end up happening to us? Um, and through researching this again, I read a lot of YouTube comments and I've seen that over and over and over again. And Dave Chappelle himself said a quote like that, that if Anthony Bourdain had all of that opportunity and he still killed himself, then what about the average person? So I wanted to do this for ages and ages and I just didn't feel mentally in the right headspace to do it. I since Anthony died, I haven't watched his show until this year. I haven't been able to. It was way too difficult for me to watch his show. But finally, patron John sent me the sign that I needed. He emailed me a picture of him outside one of Anthony's early restaurants he worked in in Provincetown, Massachusetts, I believe. And he was standing out the front. And I thought, well, that's literally a sign because I wrote back to John, well, I've been wanting to do his profile for ages. So thank you. So I've been rewatching his episodes for the last few months while I do things around the house. I find it really easy to watch them and I find them, you know, entertaining and educational. And I've learned so much for this podcast through Anthony. I have talked about him on previous episodes and I think played a couple of clips of him, I think in Ghana. Um, I try not to use too many clips from Parts Unknown or No Reservations, but back in the day, I used to watch like um, an episode before I would go somewhere, you know, to be able to see it through his eyes. Now, I like to read comments on YouTube videos as I'm watching them. I'm sure a lot of people do that. And while watching these clips I'll be using in these episodes of Tony's, I will interchange Tony and Anthony because he did go by Tony. I realized just how much he impacted people's lives, but not like in a, I saw a movie that he was in and I thought it was amazing, that kind of thing. It was like he really impacted people's lives. <laughs> he inspired people to do things, better their lives, go places, go somewhere they'd never been before to totally overhaul their lives. So on these episodes, I will be interluding into quotes from people on YouTube, their comments that I've screen capped that kind of stood out to me. Um, and I'll be reading those to you. So when you hear the interlude, that will be your sign. When I was on an island in Thailand on Koh Samui in 2018, I met an American couple um, and they had just gone to Chiang Mai, literally just to go to the food stand that Anthony goes to in the Chiang Mai episode that's run by the woman in the cowboy hat. So 
people literally go to where he's gone to. If you're not a fan of Tony, maybe this will be like something that will you will get into, like watching his show. And I think at the moment with lockdowns and people not being able to travel, this is an important thing to kind of broaden your horizons. Um, so I'll be including these comments from videos throughout these episodes because each video is simply loaded with thousands of comments. The best ones are on that Fast Company one that I opened up this episode with on how much Anthony meant to them or how much he inspired them and how much his death has affected them. I don't think any other celebrity I've heard of has had this kind of impact on people, in particular his death. He gave people an escape and I don't know how he would have handled the last year and a half, honestly. Um, if he had been around for it. He educated people. He spoke to anyone. He ate random shit. Um, I've really tried to be like that for this podcast. So I'll be including those quotes throughout, you know, this episode and I'll interlude them in. If you are a conspiracy theorist, in particular in regards to people's serious decades-long mental health battles, I suggest you turn this off. I don't want to hear any bullshit. Um, this, that generally comes, I've seen, from people who don't even know who he is. They're just always kind of like the CIA killed Anthony Bourdain. I mean, come on. Um, have you watched even five minutes of one of his shows? You would know that he repeatedly talked about suicide and clearly he had suicidal ideations. He also talked about his struggles. Um, I cannot include every element of Tony's life in this multi-parter. If I did an episode on my own life, I still wouldn't be able to do that. So if there's tiny bits I miss in his story or I don't refer to a particular episode of Parts Unknown, um, please just, you know, do your own series. So um, let's get into talking about Anthony Bourdain's early life. Anthony Michael Bourdain was born on the 25th of June 1956 in New York City, New York. When he died, he was 61 years old in 2018, about two weeks before he turned 62. His early life, a lot of people don't really know about it, and he didn't talk extensively about it in any interviews or anything like that. His mum was called Gladys. She was actually alive when Anthony killed himself still. She died not long after he did at the start of 2020, so last year, and she was 85 years old. And she was very instrumental in Anthony's life. His dad was a French, a son of French immigrants called Pierre Bourdain. So most people say Bourdain, but in French, it's like Bourdain. Um, so Gladys worked at the New York Times. She was a copy editor. So she had a similar job to what my dad had. Um, she worked in a fast paced newsroom and a lot of people don't realize just how much she helped Tony kind of get published at the start, especially with his New Yorker piece that would kind of propel him to fame. So it's not like Tony didn't have a leg up in his career, but these days it is not what you know, it's who you know, and it's an unfortunate thing. But if you can use and leverage those, that's really important. Um, and it's not like he didn't have any skills because all she did was kind of introduce him to the right people. He then made a name for himself. His dad, Pierre, was a music executive for Columbia Records. He had started out working as a salesman in a record store and then became a manager and slowly worked his way up. So he ultimately was quite high up at Columbia Records. Now, Tony had a younger brother called Christopher, who he went by Chris, and he is still, you know, around today. And I believe he lives in New Jersey. 
Gladys was Jewish and Pierre was Catholic, but the household wasn't particularly religious and Tony would say that he really didn't believe in a higher power. Pierre, his dad, died in 1987. When he was 57, he had a heart attack suddenly um, and he did not get to see Tony become, you know, a worldwide sensation. Tony was barely, you know, into his 30s when that happened. Tony's younger brother, Chris, spoke publicly about a year after Tony's death when the Anthony Bourdain food trail was launched in 2019. This takes people around specific places that he would frequent in his home state of New Jersey. Christopher spoke um, to today in 2019 about how Gladys and Pierre really influenced their two sons to be very big eaters. They were very varied eaters. And Gladys would regularly cook from Julia Child's cookbook to impress Pierre's French parents who, you know, the French are very, um, they're very big foodies and they've probably got high expectations. Um, So Gladys would cook from that and Christopher remembers that. Now, Anthony's paternal grandfather, so Pierre's father, he came from a place in France called Arsachon or Arcachon. It's near Bordeaux. I looked it up. Um, and I don't know if Bordin means anything in French or if it's, you know, I don't know if it comes from Bordeaux. Um, he came to New York following World War One, and that's how the family ultimately ended up in the States. Growing up, the family would regularly visit France and Tony's paternal grandparents. And Tony grew up speaking French. And there's a few interviews where he speaks a little bit of French. Um, in his book, Kitchen Confidential, he would talk about how eating oysters on a family holiday in France would create this love for food that would continue on, you know, for the rest of his life. And food really became a lot more than just digestion um, for Tony. Rightfully so, he later on in interviews talks about how food tells you everything about what a country is, the socioeconomic situation of a country, um, what their values are. And that is very, very true. Um So he was a Boy Scout growing up and by all accounts, he was a pretty good kid. He didn't seem like he was a real hassle. There was no talk of that. His family lived in a town called Leone, which is in New Jersey, um, where the boys grew up. And it's really not that far from New York City. Growing up right near New York City gave the boys a pretty big breadth of food influences to try. And Chris would tell today, quote, a thing that was particularly nice that influenced Tony was our parents influencing us to try new things. We ate Danish in New York. We went to Chinatown regularly. When Indian showed up in the 70s, we tried it. When sushi was a new thing in the 70s, we tried it, unquote. And I don't know if like you guys are big eaters. We just ate what we were given at home and my mum was a great cook. Um, And we pretty much if we didn't eat what was there, we didn't get anything. So I, me and my brothers were massive eaters and there's nothing that none of us are picky about. Um, and I think that's almost like genetic because neither of my parents are picky about anything and love, you know, foreign food. And we've always, you know, um, had Chinese or Indian or things like that. So I have put the picture for the episode photo for those who are listening on Spotify. But if you haven't seen Anthony Bourdain when he was young, (laughs) I will put these pictures on the episode page as well as on the Patreon as well. Tony had a massive afro, like, and I understand how this is because it's pretty much like what mine is like. Um, He had a massive, like dark brown afro. And in the seventies, it was like long and crazy. I always thought Tony was attractive 
But then when he died, three people in a week contacted me to say how much he looked like my dad. And that stopped being a thing for me. He does look like my dad a lot. When Tony graduated, you know, when he went to high school, he went to a pretty good prep school. Remember, this is not someone whose family is poverty stricken. His dad's pretty high up and his mum works at the New York Times. After graduating high school, he went to Vassar College. Vassar is in Poughkeepsie, New York, um, and he went there for two years before he ultimately dropped out. During this time, he worked at various restaurants, including the one that John went to in Provincetown. Finally, he decided to transfer to the Culinary Institute of America, which is otherwise known as the CIA. I wonder if that propels conspiracy theorists. It's an anagram. This is a very esteemed private culinary college just north of Poughkeepsie, New York, and I'm sure it wasn't cheap to go there. So I'm presuming that if you send your child there, you want to definitely think that they're going to get into working in high-end restaurants and things like that. Um, But Anthony loved it and ultimately he would graduate from there in 1978. I looked it up and the CIA is actually the first college to teach culinary arts in the whole United States. So that's how it's so it's a very kind of historic place to go if you want to make your career in food. Crazy MF 9010 on YouTube wrote, quote, I remember he died while I was in prison and I was really bummed out because his shows were always a really nice escape for me and helped me understand a little more about other parts of the world and its people. I'm grateful to have known who you were and what you did, Tony. Thank you. So after Tony graduated from the CIA in 1978, he went on to get jobs in various restaurants in New York City, which is kind of, I guess, the place to be if you're an up-and-comer. Some of them he got sacked from, um, some of them he liked. He worked at famous places like the Supper Club, Sullivan's and One Fifth Avenue um, in New York, but things weren't always pretty. And I'm sure if you've read Kitchen Confidential, you'll kind of know that. But here's Tony talking to Fast Company about that. No, I've been fired many times my, in my cooking career. Uh, I've been fired a number of times. I was not a particularly good chef. Uh, I had a lot of problems at various points of my career with narcotics. Um, I was very deservedly uh, fired on a number of occasions. Um, but I mean, if you're talking about failure, uh, the, the, you know, I accepted failure as a chef because I was at various times a bad chef or even a bad person. Uh, these days, if I fail, it's because I tried to do something and did not succeed or I, I just was not able to do uh, what I hoped to do or wanted to do. Or maybe I tried to do something that just clearly, in retrospect, didn't work. But I would much rather that. I would much rather fail gloriously than not venture, not try. Um, I'm not in, as I said before, I'm not interested in incompetent, making, telling, telling stories with, with competence. I'm looking to tell them with 
some style and originality. So a lot of people don't know that Anthony was actually married for 20 years, um, his first marriage. He married his high school girlfriend, Nancy, um, in 1985, and he and Nancy were together for 20 years. They didn't have any children. Um, they divorced in 2005. Now, she's always been pretty private. I believe they always stayed friends because there's more kind of older photos of them together. Um, I think they broke up from everything that I've ever read about them because she didn't like the lifestyle that Anthony ended up getting where he was away for, you know, 300 days of the year traveling all the time. And she'd kind of been there for him through drug addiction, him up and coming in restaurants and things. And I don't think at her age, you know, in almost 50, she really wanted to become like a nomad. But I, she never made a public statement when he died, but they always remained good friends. And I do believe that when things got really tough and really dark for Anthony at times in his life, he would contact Nancy despite, you know, not being married anymore. He would say in his second book, Medium Raw, that after they divorced, he was regularly suicidal and pretty much like tried to write himself off repeatedly. There's a photo of Nancy and Anthony, which I'll put in the Patreon and on the website. It's my absolute one of my favourite photos of Anthony Bourdain. He and Nancy are like laying on a couch when they're young, <clears throat> just kind of with their legs like kind of over each other. I just really love it because he doesn't look like tense or anything. It's kind of like a nice, a nice moment in time for him. So working in restaurants is hard. <clears throat> Chefs are usually demonic as far as I'm concerned. They usually don't, you know, they're not. <laughs> I've worked in like a lot of restaurants and I have a lot of stories about chefs. And if you'd like to know some stories about chefs, I am reading a book that I wrote. Um, I started writing in 2012 about my time living overseas and I've read part one on the Patreon. It's only for patrons. I need to record part two. I just haven't gotten around to it. <clears throat> but I've had some interesting experiences with chefs, female and male. Um, I've been screamed at. I've been called horrible things. Um I worked for a horrible woman um, in England in a pub. I've worked for a good one as well, which was a young guy, but I think over time they kind of get hardened. <laughs> I worked for a horrible one in Australia when I finished uni um, that I'll never forget. I'm sure most of you have been in restaurants and things and have worked under chefs, but this particular one, I still occasionally think of him and wish him ill. I'm an ill wisher. Um, <laughs> someone you told me like, oh, I think he likes you, but I'm like, no, I, I think this is one of those instances where he doesn't, he just fucking hates me. The minute that I started working at this, this, um, restaurant, he would do these things to kind of make it look like he liked all the other waitresses except for me. So he'd be all chatty with them in the kitchen, but I'd walk in and he wouldn't respond to me. He'd give me evil looks. When we had like work functions and things, he would just stand in the corner and give me like evils. Um, and I never figured out what the problem was. I was always really bubbly. I remember trying to talk to him like a bunch of times. He probably liked me, who fucking knows, but he was married with a little kid. And whenever I think of a chef, I don't think of Tony Bourdain. I don't think of the shitty celebrity chefs we have in Australia <laughs> or Guy Fieri. I think of this fucking country bumpkin asshole. So... There's a GQ article where Anthony, they reposted it when he died, but there was an interview with him where he really started to hit the big time. Um, and they asked him if he'd ever said anything in the restaurant, in a restaurant, 
um, that he'd regretted. And he said, quote, I'm sure I have, but I can't think what it was. Sometimes you make people cry and they fucking deserve to cry. Other times you do it inadvertently and you can see that you've hurt them. I threw a pair of tongs at someone once and it hit them in the eye. That was bad. I was fired for telling a busboy once, if you do that again, I'll tear your head off and shit down your neck. My employer wasn't happy with that, but I don't regret that comment, unquote. (laughs) So as many of you will know, drug use and the restaurant industry go hand in hand. And later on, when Anthony would get published by the New Yorker magazine in a very no-holds-barred piece that he wrote about the restaurant industry um, and things that they do that you may not want to hear about, he talked about how most criminals like in prison or repeat offenders, the most common um, job that they put down that they had before they went to prison um, was a cook. (laughs) So there's cooks and there's chefs. My mum had an ex who was a cook and he used to call himself um, a chef and his name was actually Jeff. So he used to call himself Jeff the chef. My mum used to say, you're not a fucking chef, you're a cook. There's a big difference. Like you, a cook kind of makes he worked in like a nursing home. So that makes you a cook. Um, So Anthony Bourdain really lived very hard. Um, He's never really talked extensively about his heroin addiction. He talked a little bit about it in Kitchen Confidential and his different books. Drug use and the restaurant industry do go hand in hand, especially with cooks, um, chefs, sous chefs and the like. Um, in the late 1990s, Anthony wrote an article that would kind of in a way propel him to fame. Through this, he would end up getting picked up by the New Yorker and being given $50,000 to write a book. And this was kind of how he got his start. This article was published in 1999 and basically his mum got him an introduction with a New York Times reporter that she knew. And she, this woman, was married to the editor of the New Yorker magazine. So so according to the New York Times in an article about Gladys Bourdain and when she died in 2020, quote, Miss Fien, who left the New York Times in 1999, said on Monday, I hate to sound like a pushy mum, sorry, said on Monday that Gladys Bourdain said, quote, I hate to sound like a pushy mum, but I'm telling you this with my editor's hat on, not my mother's hat on. It's really good and it's really interesting and nobody will look at it. Nobody will call him back or give it a second look. Could you put it in your husband's hands? Unquote. And this led Anthony to having his first big article that you can still read on the New Yorker website. It it is It was published under the name, Don't Eat Before Reading This, (laughs) A New York Chef Spills Some Trade Secrets. And that was published in 99 and Tony was over 40 by this point. So if you ever think that you can't make it when you're older, I wrote a whole article once um, for a client about people who made it big later. It was for like a client who had career blogs. People like JK Rowling, um, Roald Dahl, I think, um, Julia Childs, they all made it big. 40s, 50s, 60s. So don't ever think that you can't because Tony Bourdain um, is proof of that. Sensei Soldier wrote on YouTube after Tony died, quote, Anthony is the reason I attended culinary school and had dreams of being a chef. It was not so much the cooking aspect, but more so the learning of different cultures and nationalities. Tony, RIP, you were a true and honest man who told it like it was and was open about his struggles, which has helped and would continue to help many people struggling with addiction, which is a very common issue in the cooking world, unquote. 
I kind of realised when I was researching this that not even two decades after he had that first piece published in the New York Times, he would have made it big, travelled to almost 100 countries after not travelling anywhere leading up to his 40s and would have died. And that's, you know, a lot to cram into 20 years. So Anthony was always very vocal about his pet peeves in the restaurant industry He hated brunch, he hated vegetarians, he hated vegans, he hated celebrity chefs. Um, And there's a really good video that I'll play probably in a later part where he he rates food trends. Um, And I think a lot of us can relate to this. I write food articles for a particular client overseas as part of my job. Um, And writing about some of the food trends makes me want to like give up my job. It's really depressing. So I'm going to read you a snippet of Anthony writing in this New Yorker piece in 99 about two massive pet peeves of his, brunch and vegetarians. And someone should tell, someone should read this to Melburnians because Melburnians love brunch. Quote, then there are the people who brunch. The B word is dreaded by all dedicated cooks. We hate the smell and spatter of omelettes. We despise hollandaise, home fries, those pathetic fruit garnishes and all the other cliche accompaniments designed to induce a credulous public into paying $12.95 for two eggs. Nothing demoralises an aspiring Escoffier faster than requiring him to cook egg white omelettes or eggs over easy with bacon. You can dress brunch up with all the focaccia smoked salmon and caviar in the world, but it's still breakfast. Even more despised than the brunch people are the vegetarians. Serious cooks regard these members of the dining public and their Hezbollah-like splinter faction, the vegans, as enemies of everything that's good and decent in the human spirit. To live life without veal or chicken stock, fish cheeks, sausages, cheese or organ meats is treasonous, unquote. I didn't eat meat for like seven years. I would I would have been so upset reading that back in the day, (laughs) but I just love the Hezbollah-like splinter faction part where they're the vegans. In 1998, Anthony Bourdain got a really big job as the executive chef at a very high up establishment that only just shut in 2017 called Les Halles. I think that's how you say it. It is a um, district of Paris. I know that. So it's in Manhattan. And they had restaurants across New um, the States and the world. So they had one in Miami, one in Washington, D.C., one in Tokyo. And Anthony got this kind of executive chef job that he maintained for quite a long time because even when he first got his travel shows, he still wasn't a household name. Even when he was no longer employed by Les Halles, when he became like a massive, you know, household name traveling the world almost 300 days of the year. He always had a close tie to this restaurant. Um, They described him as their quote unquote chef at large. They closed in 2017 after filing for bankruptcy. But when he died, I remember a lot of his fans went to Les and left flowers and notes and things for Anthony because that was what they associated New York, you know, this restaurant with Anthony. So Throughout all this time, Anthony continued to write and submit pieces to small magazines, but despite this, he didn't find any success before he got the New Yorker piece. According to him as well, he was also battling a heroin addiction 
and really looking at videos of him on YouTube and re-looking at interviews with him and reading comments. A lot of recovered alcoholics and addicts, even in interviews where he claims to be sober, say he's definitely an alcoholic here. Um, he was definitely a long-term alcoholic. And when we get into probably part three and I talk about how much Anthony aged um, in just a couple of short years, and if you look at pictures of it, it will become pretty apparent to you something, you know, below the surface was going on. He was battling with something. So finally, in the year 2000, Anthony finally found what appeared to be overnight success despite behind the scenes trying for years and being a writer, writing fiction, non-fiction. I don't know many chefs that kind of double as writers are a, and are as good as Anthony Bourdain was. His book, Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, became a New York Times bestseller. And if you haven't read it, it's great. Read it or listen to the Audible. When he died in 2018, it again topped the New York Times bestsellers list. New Yorker calls and says, we're running your story. We're buying your story. They ran it. Uh, that was a huge break for me because within 48 hours, uh, an editor at Bloomsbury USA named Karen Rinaldi had read the article and commissioned me for the staggeringly high price of $50,000 to write a book. And... Um, when that book came out, it was immediately a bestseller and it changed my life overnight. Overnight. I mean, I was desperately in debt. Hadn't paid my rent in time ever. Owed, had owed Amex for 10 years without making a single payment. Owed the IRS. Hadn't even filed. Was in very, very, very insecure place at age 44. And suddenly, people were offering me things and offering me opportunities. Um, and I think if I did, I was old enough and I fucked up enough already that I just said, you know, I realized this is a lucky break. It was unlucky, unlikely to get another. So I made very careful choices in that environment. Was very determined to not fuck up. So one of Anthony Bourdain's inspirations for writing Kitchen Confidential um, is a book that I love. It's one of my favourite books. I first read it about 10 years ago. It's by George Orwell, who's one of my favourite writers, and it's his first real book that he wrote, but it wasn't published, I don't think, till after he died. It's called Down and Out in Paris and London. It was written in 1933, and if you haven't read it, it's really good. So George Orwell came from quite a well-off family. He was buried around the corner from where I lived in England. Um, he made himself homeless in Paris first and then in London to write about it, to experience um, what it was like. He worked in kitchens in Paris. Um, he slept rough in London. And then ultimately he kind of gave it up after a couple of years and went back to his money. Um, but it gave him, you know, footing for the rest of his life. Um, and it really looked at restaurant businesses in Paris, which is something that I really loved in the book. So Kitchen Confidential exploded in popularity and life really wasn't the same for Tony afterwards. He kind of kissed goodbye his anonymity, I guess. He was on Oprah and talk shows. He became one of the very early celebrity chefs, despite him having a massive issue with the term celebrity chefs and having massive issues with other celebrity chefs, um, like 
Paula Dean and Guy Fieri. He would fight with all of them publicly. He felt that they were greedy um, and how much money did they really need um, and that they'd kind of moved away from the hallmarks of what being a chef is all about. Um, here's Tony being interviewed, I think in 1999 or 2000, um, on a very small talk show in the States. He talks very differently early on. He was very self-conscious, very fidgety. Looking back, you realise that he was dealing with addiction, um, which is pretty clear, I think, to people who have dealt with addiction. You look at comments online and they picked it out, you know, straight away. Um, and he was very, as someone wrote in a comment, scripted in what he was saying. He was very careful about what he was saying. He was very careful, as he said in that interview with Fast Company, about choices that he made. Just about all the reaction I've had from chefs and cooks has been extraordinarily positive in, in that this was written as a sort of a, uh, overly frank, perhaps, Valentine to a business that I've been in for 28 years and love. And uh, I think a lot of chefs and cooks have been gratified to hear, uh, you know, someone talking about the business in, in a, you know, completely honest way in a language uh, that, that's entirely familiar to them. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people have suspicions about how the restaurant business works as they do about other things. I mean, the food comes out, it looks beautiful and it's all prepared. But you wonder, you know, some guy isn't wiping his brow into this stuff. And that, I mean, it doesn't happen every yeah. day in every restaurant. But as you point out in the book, it happens. I really wasn't looking to uh, terrify the dining public. <laughs> I, I'd written this really as an entertainment for people in the business primarily. I wanted... I wanted the, the reader to have the same uh, sort of reaction I had when I read uh, Orwell for the first time, the sense that I'm, I'm not alone. Uh, you know, others have come before me yeah. who've been through this sort of nonsense. So Tony was extremely skinny. <laughs> he, he was until, you know, the day he died. He was, I think, six foot four, according to the New York Times, um, and not particularly self-confident in the beginning, very jittery, spoke softly, and I guess... <clears throat> That's one of the things about making it big older. Um, he kind of already knew who he was and it wasn't long before he became very comfortable um, talking, I guess. And that was when he was offered his travel shows, which is the main reason um, that we're talking about him. So one of Anthony's best friends for a very long time is a French chef called Eric Repair. Now, I love Eric. He's a lovely man. And if you're a fan of Anthony, you'll know who Eric is. He was regularly on Parts Unknown. Um, they were, they all really brought out the best in each other. Eric was very good as a friend for Anthony. Eric's a Buddhist. Um, he's a very centered guy. I love their interviews together. They did a lot of them. Um, they really were great friends and I'll play some interviews, you know, on part two. He was also the one that would later find Anthony dead. And I do wonder if this was something that Anthony knew, um, but ultimately it would be Eric. And Eric is a very centered um, person who's able to deal with, you know, the the troubles that come with life and that he would be able to be the one to deal with it. Um, and I regularly think of Eric and, you know, wonder how he's going. Later, um, Anthony would speak about finding success later, you know, and what that meant to him. Comes from having found success a little bit later in life and you're sort of like, look, I don't want to, I don't have to do this if I, I'm not going to do this if I don't want to do it. Right. So don't put me in a position where I don't want to do it. I think it's a function of having made a lot of mistakes in my life before uh, I, I became successful with Kitchen Confidential. I think it's also uh, the good fortune to have sort of blundered into television as the one guy in the room who didn't give a shit. And, and 
I realized very early on that this was a really powerful negotiating position to be in. So I never had to from the beginning. And I got used to that very quickly. And um, now I just won't have it any other way. Uh, it's not necessarily integrity. It just, it's a quality of life issue. I don't want to wake up tomorrow and feel bad about what I did yeah. today. And I've been careful about, I mean, having, having had those mornings uh, for, you know, much of my adult life, um, I've been careful about not finding myself in a position where, you know, I have to do something I feel bad about, right? I, 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 I compromise in such ways to feel bad. Again, it's not principle so much or integrity as it's a quality of life issue. I'd like to feel good tomorrow. I don't want to hate myself. I know what that's like, you know? So that was an interview with the Build series on YouTube and just that was eight months before Tony killed himself. So no matter how much people sound like they're together or they're functioning um, or they enjoy their life or they know where they're at in their life, um, it's obvious that that's people can hide it, you know, and we've talked about that kind of extensively on the show with specific people who've, you know, gone missing and seemed fine and people say that they're fine and then they're gone. Um, so yeah, I just, that's the thing to keep in mind. And also he was getting older, which is something that I will talk about probably on part three. Um, older people feel no matter how successful they are, that they are disposable. And this is something, you know, um, that society kind of pushes on people, usually women, but male mental health is something that we often forget about. That's incredibly important. So I'm going to end part one on a quote from Dada Yu on YouTube when Anthony died. Um, and this person wrote this quote, he inspired me to change my dark path I was on. I too looked in the mirror and saw someone worth saving. Everyone is, if you're struggling with alcohol and substances. Look long and hard in the mirror. Look at your baby pictures, your youth before you took a wrong turn. You are 100% worth saving and you can absolutely do it. The experience won't be easy, but it's not all wretched. Every day you will feel pride and you'll be you again. Every day becomes easier to feel life, all that you've been missing. If you start now, get through it. Life will be 100% better. Just try, unquote. I will be back <clears throat> probably tomorrow or the day after tomorrow with part two. Um, it's quite a lot to put together, obviously. Um, I hope that you guys are doing well. And yeah, I will talk to you then. Bye.